My dad and I had a rocky relationship when I was a teenager. Whether it was the length of my hair, which I actually had some, or my choice of friends, or my lack of diligence to my studies, we crossed swords frequently. My biggest problem was that I was unconverted and rebellious and arrogant. So I left home at 17. But there was one subject where Dad and I always saw eye to eye, always could get along perfectly. That was the subject of Johnny Cash. Dad always had sitting in the player in his car, his eight-track player, he had Johnny Cash's greatest hits, Ring of Fire, Folsom Prison Blues, I've Been Everywhere, Man. Dad and Mom both appreciated Johnny because, like them, he'd grown up on a cotton farm nearby in Arkansas and knew a thing or two about hard work. And Johnny's stock really went up when I was a senior in high school. After a massive ride at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, Johnny came and to McAllister and did a concert and calmed everybody down. He could have run for governor and been elected by acclamation. Johnny even appeared at Billy Graham Crusades, in fact, one in Columbia, South Carolina in 1987. But his finest record wasn't released until after his death. He died in 2003, but his best record was released in 2006. That was his single, God's Gonna Cut You Down, in which Johnny speaks very clearly of the Lord's judgment on the proud and the need for humility. The Apostle Peter in our text today, I hope you're looking at it at 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6. The Apostle Peter knew a thing or two about being cut down. In one of the most spectacular boasts in all of history, Peter told Jesus and the other disciples in the upper room that even if all of them betray Jesus, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. Within four hours, he had, of course, been humiliated. He'd been cut down. Then, as if that humbling were not enough, Peter was humbled further in Galatians 2 when the Apostle Paul had to rebuke him in public for his errant teaching. In fact, Peter's teaching was so aberrant, his practice was so out there, that Paul said of him, You were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So in our text this morning, when Peter speaks about humility, this is a man who knows a thing or two about how painful it is to be humbled. This morning, the Lord's going to speak to us about very basic issues in the Christian life. Humility and pride. Every single person in this room struggles with pride, struggles mightily with pride, and desperately needs to pull it off and put on humility. So let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us together this morning. Our Father, we are weak in faith. We're curious about things that you tell us are secrets, and we neglect the things that you've revealed to us in your word. And so we ask that you would now pour out your Holy Spirit upon this congregation, that he would come and strengthen us in our belief in and our understanding of your holy word. Enable us to shut out all the distractions that the evil one will throw at us and enable us to deeply drink from your truth. We pray in the name of our mediator and savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Look carefully, as I said, at 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6, and 
Peter begins this section by giving a command to younger people in the congregation. So if that's you, if you're a child or in middle or high schooler, Peter is speaking directly to you. Peter uses the Greek word, notice it in verse 5, presbyteros, which is translated as elders. A clear command is given to youth and children to have a relationship of honor and respect towards the church's elders. And this is repeated in Hebrews 13, 17. Now, when Peter gives this age-related imperative to younger people to be in submission to your elders, this isn't unusual. The Holy Spirit frequently in Scripture gives directives to people based on their age or their gender, sometimes both. So, for example, in Titus 2, Paul writing to Titus, and he speaks to older women directly. He speaks to younger women directly, speaks to younger men directly. Or the psalmist in Psalm 119, when David writes to young men exclusively, does the same thing. His son Solomon does the same thing in Ecclesiastes 11, speaking to young men. John writing in 1 John 2 speaks to little children, young men, and fathers. And Solomon, once again, in Proverbs 3, gives an extended discussion. In Proverbs 3, 4, and 5, instruction to fathers of what to tell their sons and even young sons. Now, what you see here is a is a hierarchical, stratified culture is what the Bible teaches us, that each of us should know who we are, where we fit, who our inferiors and superiors are, and, and our equals as well. In fact, let me ask you to do something really quickly. Grab that hymnal in front of you and turn to page 956. And I want you to notice there are some of you who don't have the larger catechism memorized, and so you'll need to look this up. There are others of you who are under the age of 13 who do have the larger catechism memorized, and you can just recall this from memory. But you'll notice what our larger catechism captures on page 956. Larger Catechism 127 and 128. And it captures what Peter is saying. Now, don't chafe against this. If you're chafing against this, it's because you're worldly. It's because you don't like the the stratification that scripture sets up of superiors and inferiors and equals. Notice larger catechism 127 says, what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? And in so doing, Peter is, it's just reflecting what we read in 1 Peter 5 verse 5. We're told the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors, that would be younger men to their elders, is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them. And it goes on. Larger Catechism 128 then looks at the inverse. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? And it begins with all neglect of the duties required towards them. And then it goes on completely. Notice what the command is that follows then the command to, to reverence elders. And that is the command to universal submission. When Peter writes, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. What Peter is getting here is, is a general lowliness in the congregation. When he says, all of you be submissive to one another and quickly adds, be clothed with humility. He's thinking of occasions like the one in John 13 when Jesus 
modeled this on the night before his death when he lowered himself and gladly washed the feet of his disciples. Or when the apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, in lowliness of mind, let every one of you esteem others better than himself. This principle isn't theoretical. The apostle Paul testified this is how he lived. For example, when he met the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul wrote, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving you with all humility. And so look back, if you're a young person, look back up to the beginning of verse 5. If you're a young person in this room, meaning still living in your parents' home, the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to you in this text. And so I would ask you, do you know who the elders are to submit to them? These are the men who are devoted to prayer. We just had one of them leading us in prayer. They're those men who are devoted to prayer and the word. They shepherd the flock and they rule in matters of discipline. They lead the congregation. As a young person, you have a specific imperative to act upon today. But what I want to focus on for the bulk of our time this morning is this juxtaposition that Peter does between humility and pride. Stare at verse 5 and 6, and Peter actually probably says a lot more than you want him to say about humility and pride. And he gives another imperative for each of us to be clothed with humility. Now, you're going to have a battle here because most people are going to say, I know, I'm going to go ahead and check out mentally and I'm going to write my grocery list, at least in my head, Carl. I want you to look very carefully at what the Spirit is teaching us about humility and pride. It's interesting how I would say that if social media, the omnipresent social media has done anything in our day, just in the last decade, it has, with rocket fuel, ratcheted up our pride. I'm always fascinated when I look at social media. It's always painful for me to do, even to look at the social media accounts of people in this congregation. I'm always astounded at how much people want to talk about themselves, how much they want to boast about their accomplishments, how much they want the rest of the world to see them. Let's think about the biblical mandate to us today. You have a command here, an imperative to be clothed with humility. Let me define humility so there'll be no mistaking what I mean. Humility consists of an attitude that recognizes our own insignificance and unworthiness before God. It is a growing habitual tendency to think and behave in a lowly manner. In other words, the attitude of humility is seen in humble actions. Humility means having a servant's mindset and intentionally putting yourself last. The importance of humility in the Christian life cannot be overstated. You should be humble because you're a creature and not the creator. You should be humble because you're a dependent being, dependent upon God's strength for every breath you take, every beat of your heart. You should be humble because you've broken God's law in word, thought, and deed tens of thousands of occasions, and you will do so again in the coming month. You should be humble because you're commanded to be so. You should be humble because your Lord was humble. He came all the way down, sought the lowest place. 
you should be humbled because Peter tells us, as James has already done in James 4, that the humble man will be blessed and exalted. When I speak of humility, where should that occur? First of all, before God. One of the greatest three or four leaders in all of history, Moses, when he recognized he was in the presence of God in the burning bush in Exodus 3, he immediately took off his shoes, bowed low, and worshiped God. Another great leader, Isaiah, was not ashamed to cry out when he came into the presence of a holy God, woe is me. The apostle John fell at his feet of Jesus, though he were dead in Revelation 1. These great men, Moses, Isaiah, John, all saw that when they came into the presence of God, there was one posture commanded, lowliness. But it's not just enough to be humble before God. We also must be humble before the word. That's why James writes in James 1 that you and I are to receive with meekness the implanted word. That when we come to the word of God, we must bring a posture of absolute submission because they are the very words of God. Another place where you and I should be humble is anytime we're speaking about our accomplishments or our gifts. We should remember the words of Proverbs to let another praise you and not your own lips. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the increase. Of course, you know what our struggle is. Everyone here, I will have no contradiction here. There's no contradiction allowed. Everyone in the room, I'm at the head of the line, struggles massively with our flesh in the area of pride. Notice what we're told in our text. How does God view the proud? He resists them. He opposes them. He is against them. What do I mean by pride? Conceit of superiority. Arrogance. A desire to glorify self. A soul inordinately pleased with self. Such an attitude is hated and opposed by God in every situation. If you're an 85-year-old woman or a 5-year-old boy, God hates it. He opposes it. Because it is that wicked attitude that refuses to acknowledge dependence upon him. God repeatedly tells us in scripture that he hates pride. In Proverbs 6, we're told six traits, no seven, that God hates. Pride is on the list. In James chapter 4, God tells us that he's opposed to the proud man. Pride, of course, is so hateful because it's destructive. It's foolishness. Because you and I have no reason for pride. Anything we have is a gift of God. And pride will be judged harshly. Listen to what Jesus says about pride. Everyone who exalts himself will be brought low. Why does God hate pride so much? Because first of all, it was Satan's first sin. Do you remember Satan's words recorded for us in Isaiah 14? I will make myself like the most high. And then pride was that bait that Satan held out to Adam and Eve. You'll not die. You'll be like God. You can be smarter than him if you'll eat of the forbidden fruit. Pride, of course, is the essential root sin. 
It's the sin out of which all other sins arise. It's at the bottom, the foundation of all other sins. Augustine described pride as man curved in on himself. Pride, of course, is not also the first sin. It's the most dogged sin. It's the most persistent of our sins. Thomas Boston, one of my dearest friends, he's been dead now 300 years, and so he really qualifies as a good friend of mine. Thomas Boston said, pride comes early and it stays too late. Jesus painted that horrid picture of the proud Pharisee who goes home lost. In the description of our salvation, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 tells us why God orders his salvation the way he does. So that not one person will ever be able to take any credit or glory. When Paul wants to characterize the lost man in 2 Timothy 3, he sums it up this way. Lovers of selves, boastful, proud. One of God's great designs, even in affliction, when he afflicts the believer, is to take away your pride. Now look carefully at verse 6. We have a promise to the lowly, a promise that you and I should claim. I'm always fascinated by the health and wealth gospel and how the promises that they will tell you to name and claim are always promises of wealth and health. I never find anyone claiming this promise. Look in verse 6. The promise is you humble yourself and God will exalt you in due time. What is God's purpose in humbling you? God humbles you so you'll not rely on your own righteousness, but you'll rely solely on the merit, the finished work, the righteousness of Jesus. God humbles you so you'll be like Christ. God humbles you so you'll completely submit to his word and acknowledge that his written wisdom is completely above yours. To humble yourself. And this is what I really want to speak to us about today. This is what Peter is counseling. To humble yourself means to cultivate an attitude of lowliness, of insignificance before God, and attribute to him supreme honor and praise. To humble yourself is a progressive self-lowering that should become more and more pronounced the longer we walk with Christ. It should be progressively expressed in humble actions, a servant's mindset, that always thinks of others first and only of self last. It is a consistent, progressive seeking of the lowest place. How do you humble yourself? By mortifying all ambition for honor and recognition. You remember John the Baptist who who showed this for us perfectly. As he would shine the spotlight on Jesus and would cry out, he must increase and I must decrease. <clears throat> Lowering, humbling oneself also consists in mortifying any showiness, any ostentation, any need to be seen. Our culture is screaming, and this is why social media is the perfect servant of our proud culture. Our culture is screaming, look at me, come look at my page, look at what I'm doing. Whether you're shocked or repelled or envious or offended, just look at me. This can even show up in our piety. 
Just like the Pharisees who did all their giving and praying and fasting, we are told in Scripture to be noticed by men. The believer who's humbling himself doesn't seek to be noticed by fellow worms. Please don't think that you're simply passive in this process of humbling. And God will just humble you apart from any means or labor or striving. We're to actively humble ourselves. Let me give you several ways right now to humble yourself. For those of you who struggle with pride, come and join me. Ways you can humble yourself and lower yourself. First of all, when you're feeling the need to boast or speak of your significance, reflect on the cross. The cross never flatters you. In 1700, Isaac Watts, our favorite hymn writer, wrote these words. We sing them. I hope you sing them with delight. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Every time you meditate on, consider, reflect, remember the cross, Jesus is saying, when you look at the cross, Jesus is saying, I'm here because of you. I'm here because of your sin I'm bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying. Nothing else puts us in our right place like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially of our self-righteousness. Until we come to the foot of the cross, it's there that we shrink to our true size. Another way that you can humble yourself is meditate on God's greatness. If you meditate on a vision of God's holiness, you will, like Isaiah did, cry out, woe is me. If you meditate on his omnipresence, that he is everywhere equally present, you, on the other hand, can only be in one place at one time and even then not fully there. Meditating on the greatness of God causes you to shrink. Another way that you can lower yourself, study the doctrines of grace. They shatter human pride. God has intentionally designed from all eternity past our salvation that no man can boast of any part of it. He didn't merely arrange your salvation so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. We're told repeatedly that he planned it so that human boasting would be absolutely excluded. Think of every element of your redemption, your election done by God before the foundation of the world, your atonement done by Christ, and he tells us it was all of him when he cried out it was finished. <clears throat> Your calling and drawing done by God. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Your regeneration done by God the Holy Spirit according to John 3. Part of why I love those glorious doctrines of grace that we call as a nickname Calvinism is because they crush men's pride and they give all glory to God. Another way that you can humble yourself and grow in your humility. Spend time with humble people. We learn from example. Behavior is contagious. That's why the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 13, he who walks with the wise man will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Single out a godly, lowly, older saint 
and purposefully spend time with them. Parents, this is going to be a special challenge for you. If you desire your children to be humble, then you must model humility for them. Another way to humble yourself. Transfer the glory to God. Thomas Watson, another one of my dear old friends, dead for over 300 years now, wrote, when we have done anything praiseworthy, we must immediately hide ourselves under the veil of humility and transfer the glory of all that we have done to God. Another way to humble yourself. Laugh at yourself frequently and let others do so as well. Luther has a marvelous treatise on how the devil is so proud and one thing he cannot stand is for Christians to mock him. And so he flees from their laughter. My friends, the proud man can never take a joke. He's incensed at the thought that anyone would laugh at him. How dare you laugh at me? I'm, I'm too important to be laughed at. Somebody has just told you everything you need to know about them. They are arrogant beyond all measure. Notice what our hope is. Our hope in this text is God will exalt the one who humbles himself. Calvin writes, whoever truly wants to be elevated must first be committed to self-negation. God makes the promise, look at it there, that he will raise and exalt the lowly. He will take the broken and contrite man, the lowly woman, and honor them. Not just for a moment, not just by giving them blessings that last for a decade, but giving them what Peter calls, in verse 4, the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. To the lowly, and only them, God will remove their sackcloth and set them on thrones, ruling and reigning with Christ. In making this statement that Peter makes in verse 5 and 6, he's simply quoting Jesus, who says the exact same words in Luke 14, when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But notice first the order. Christian, never forget the order. First, the humiliation, then the exaltation. First, the cross, then the crown. The path to the mountaintop always leads through the valley. God hates pride and self-esteem. And he will see to it that his elect are humbled. Even to his adopted children, he will send thorns in the flesh. Paul tells us the reason why God sent those thorns in the flesh he said, so that he might not be exalted above measure. If you lower yourself, it's so much more delightful than if God has to do it to you. But if you don't have a humble heart, God has a mighty hand. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Ask Pharaoh. God knows how to humble the proud. But of course, one of the chief reasons why you should seek after lowliness is this because you have a lowly savior and you're commanded to be conformed to his image think of our lowly savior he was lowly in his entrance when jesus rode into town on palm sunday he came in not on a white horse or an elephant like alexander the great and hannibal he came in on the back of a lowly donkey he was lowly in his birth our catechism says the humiliation of Christ consists of his being born in that in a low estate. 
He was born into a home that was so poor, his mother and father couldn't adore, uh, afford the normal offering for purification. If Jesus were alive today, he'd be in the school lunch program. We romanticize it and say, he lived a simple life. No, he was poor. That's lowly. He was lowly in his heralds. You remember the first announcement of his birth came by shepherds. The bottom of the cultural barrel. Rough, smelly, illiterate, vulgar men. Nobody wanted to grow up and be a shepherd. That's who Christ chose to be his heralds. He was lowly in his legitimacy. The most frequently repeated taunt made of Jesus all his days for 33 years was concerning his supposed illegitimacy. The social and religious stigma of illegitimacy was far different than now. To be illegitimate meant to be excluded from decent society, from God's house and his people. Jesus was taunted and mocked all his life because of his virgin birth. He was lowly in his obedience. All his life, Jesus submitted to lawful authority. Sometimes it was just arbitrary, nonsensical, and petty. His mother, Mary, was a teenager when he was born, not given to wise parenting decisions. But Jesus never disobeyed, disrespected, rolled his eyes once. He never went to his room muttering to himself. He lowered himself and submitted promptly, completely, joyfully. He was lowly in heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that his lowliness is a heart condition. So lowly was he that he was easily accessible, easily found and pled with. He didn't have an army of handlers and secretaries to wade through. The poor and the sick could and did easily approach him for help. It was said of him, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He was so lowly that he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. So lowly that he didn't see anything as being beneath himself. He would wash Right now, we at Woodruff Road are in a season of choosing leaders. We're about halfway through our training. Began back in December with nominations for elders and deacons. We'll be done in May or so. But right now, we are choosing men who will be our elders and deacons. And let me give you one word of instruction. Choose lowly men. Don't choose arrogant men who are offended quickly. Choose humble men. You remember the, the New Testament philosophy of ministry that this man who's going to be your elder, your deacon, must embody. The philosophy of ministry that Paul spells out in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ the Lord and ourselves as your bondservant for Jesus' sake. You remember this was the problem with those, those first men who Jesus drew to himself to be the first apostles and then the first elders of the church is they all suffered from not an inferiority complex, but a superiority complex. They were always disputing, we're told, as to which of them would be the greatest. Some of the most painful words come in Luke 22 when we read of James and John and Peter and we read of them, another dispute arose over who would be the greatest. And so Jesus finally turned and sharply corrected them in righteousness and said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, 
but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. How's pride going to show up in your life? How's it showing up right now? A desire for recognition. Are you willing to labor in obscurity, doing your job, your gospel duty, your ministry as unto the Lord? Or do you become bitter if you don't receive recognition? Are you like the builders of the Tower of Babel who said, let us make a name for ourselves? Jesus tells you and I what attitude we must have when he taught us to say we are unprofitable servants and we have only done what was our duty. Let me give you a few more instructions because we need all that we can take on how to humble ourselves. Seek the lowest place. And don't be offended when you're assigned to it. One of my missionary heroes was Amy Carmichael, the almost legendary Presbyterian missionary to India. And you know about the caste system in India, higher caste and lower caste, and down at the bottom you have the untouchables. When people would come to saving faith in Christ under Amy's ministry and they were of the higher caste, she would make them dig latrine ditches and she would, as they dug, she would call the lower caste converts over to watch them do it. And if the higher caste converts took offense, she simply said, you have not yet learned the first lesson of the Christian life. Stoop lower. Seek the lowest place. And don't be offended when you're assigned to it. Another way to lower yourself, memorize the beatitude and meditate upon it daily. The beatitude that Jesus taught the disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another way to, <clears throat> to lower yourself is be glad to receive humbling, honest rebukes. Francis of Assisi, after he became famous, and many extolled him for his holiness and his virtue, he began to take a traveling companion with him, another minister. And Francis said to this brother, he said, too many people are speaking to me of my goodness and grace, and it's going to my head, and so I need you to do me the favor of whisper insults in my ear. So as kind Christians would come and speak to Francis highly, the brother who was with him would lean over and say, you're unskilled and mercenary and useless for the kingdom. Francis would turn and reply with great joy, the Lord bless you. For it is you that speak the very truth that I need to hear right now. Finally, one of the things that is so glorious about the Lord's Day at Woodruff Road, that we have built into the Lord's Day into our worship every single Sunday, 52 weeks a year. We have built in in our worship shatterers for your pride. They're called, we just did it a moment ago, the confession of sin. Every Lord's Day, you have the glorious opportunity to lower yourself, to humble yourself, and confess to God and all those around you that you're a sinner, that you fall short, and you desperately need the forgiveness of a holy God. Brothers and sisters, let us join together in the pursuit of lowliness and the expectation then of exaltation. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we would corporately even now repent of our pride. As we walked in the door today, we came to be seen of men. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd lower us by this word, that you'd bring these words to our remembrance frequently. And we pray instead of pride that you would conform us to our lowly Savior. We pray in Jesus.